When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 43 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, November the 24th. First, I'll be talking to David Fairfull, the founder and CEO of Medigi and his company's AI-powered digital marketing solution for SMEs. And I'll be talking to Callum Pickering from Indeed about the latest jobs and wages figures. But first, let's talk to David Fairfull. David, tell us how Medigi has used an AI-powered digital marketing solution for small to medium-sized businesses. Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think we've been... I'd sort of say it with a little bit of regret, but we've been one of the lucky ones in terms of our business was very much, you know, suited to that purpose because we really enable SME marketers to run their digital marketing more effectively. And I'll explain how we do that, but we're lucky to have been on a a massive trend as part of that process, right? Because it became compelling for everybody to master it. And, And our business model is very much, we provide the strategy component. We use machine learning and AI to provide the strategy part of execution and it's really been allowing even an inexperienced SME marketer to become a sophisticated, capable marketer through. And the way we do that is we really provide them with decision support, and that is in the form of insights, recommendations, and really distilling data down to actionable pieces of, of information that they can execute on more effectively, like, and not only improve performance, but execute in real time. And I think that's really the key because modern digital marketing is about mastering data. And that's not naturally something that everybody does well, but it's a great application for machine learning and AI to to take that horrible part of marketing and make it really easy and fun to use so that we can be more creative and execute the right way. One of your key markets is uh, small to medium-sized enterprises. Yes, absolutely. So how does a small to medium-sized business use AI, of all things. Yeah, okay. Well, it's, again, it's one of those misnomers, right? People think that it's going to be a complex process to adopt and use. We've tried to make it really simple, like the machine does all the work at the, at the back end to distill it down to, to simple insights and actionable ideas and then great tools to execute that in a, in a really cost-effective, practical way. So, and even going from the mysterious part of marketing, which is I spend a certain amount of budget and I don't know what works to... You know what we've we've seen this opportunity 
if you action that with a small investment right now, you're going to get a significant jump in terms of improvement. So just following those processes, a customer typically gets 2x to 3x performance improvement every quarter. And that is by mastering the things that work and cutting away the things that don't. And that's normally what most marketers miss. They execute the same process all the time and expect a better result rather than optimise the things that work and cut away the things that don't. But uh, there would be a lot of training to do for marketers using AI, wouldn't there? Yeah, look, the answer is yes. And I think training, because it's always going to be a question of confidence and capability. So um, again, a limiting factor, I think AI enables you to make a better decision, but it doesn't empower the creativity or the confidence to execute. So again, in our sort of process, we try and support both those things. We've got a significant education platform that helps them learn how to execute and, and master the process. And then really the simple little things that they can do. And if they just improve on doing that each time, they're going to get a general lift in outcome, right? So how do you see the future of marketing and, it's, and AI's role in that? I think it's a really interesting thing because again, people can be a little concerned about technology and what that sort of does to the process. The general misunderstanding is that perhaps that takes away jobs or, or reduces my impact in terms of a marketer. And that probably was a trend in terms of technology a few years ago where brands were investing in technology to reduce headcount or to save money. I think now the contemporary thinking is let's harness technology, clever technology that allows us to be great marketers, we're storytellers. Fundamentally, let's harness the power of our creativity and, and execute that you know, effectively delivering great campaigns based upon a simple insight and then the human creativity that comes from, from delivering the story about the brand in a really effective way. So brands now are craving technology that impacts the performance of their team and their brand storytellers rather than saving them just time or process, right? Right, and so AI would be quite critical. Absolutely, and, and you know, it's very hard to do it for, for humans to ingest. Like, for example, we're ingesting about 20 million sources of data and analysing that in real time. You can't do that as a human, nor do you really want to do it. So it really enables that, takes away that, that hard part and gives you the opportunity to manage that data process in real time so that the stuff that you're doing as a marketer is the fun part of it, right? Craft of it. Well, can I, can I sort of go further on that and say that, I mean, one of the big issues for marketing people now is just compared to 30 years ago or 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, the amount of data Oh, yeah. to process digitally is just extraordinary. Oh, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things they have to take into account now that weren't there before. There's, there's so many channels to market, right? And customers are not agnostic. They are across all those channels and they behave differently on different devices between desktop and mobile. How do you reach that customer in a timely manner and, and do that effectively? It is like a, it is so complex and it changes all the time. Even from day to day, what worked yesterday on Facebook may not work today because a competitive brand has upped their bid rate and your ads are no longer delivering. So you've got to go to a different channel to reach that audience in a cost-effective way. It's so complex. So it is a perfect application for technology to, to do that hard work, to, to allow the human to do the, the fun, enjoyable part, the effective part of the process, if that makes sense. Because so. the, the AI basically processes all those millions of, yeah. Different data points, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And does it in real time in a way that, that you would need an incredible team of analysts to do that sort of work, right? Uh, and even then, could you get access to all that data in a practical, timely manner? 
Well, what are the biggest SME marketing fails that this has shown? Yeah, look, I think traditionally, um, and, and even now, um, there's there's still a lot of um, brands that will follow a trend without thinking about is that right for their business or right for their audience or their customer set. So following a trend is not necessarily the way to talk to your customers. You've got to engage in a way that they want to be talking, talked to and talked in an environment around that. I think repeating something that worked six months ago that now no longer works and you haven't noticed that change, but you're just repeating the process because it used to work and, and things change and impact that performance all the time. And I think, again, the other thing, certainly for SMEs, is it's just the reluctance to, to adopt new technology rather than they're a little bit scared of it. So are they really adopting and moving on it fast as well? Well, what's, what's very exciting about this, and I've, I've uh, remarked on this several times, is that what the changes we've seen since the pandemic industrially with companies adopting technology, would be AI or Zoom or Teams or whatever, is we're going through a change equivalent to what we saw during the Industrial Revolution. We are. I think it's eight to 10 years of accelerated technology adoption inside of 12 months, which is uh, quite exciting, right? Because it sets us up for so many of the things that we thought were fictional in terms of technology and adoption in a day-to-day activity in a business environment that now are pretty practical and actually available and moving very quickly. So that, that I think is exciting. You're right. It's like a condensed industrial revolution inside of a year because we've had to change our practices, right? I know even in our business and so many, you know, have adopted and, and maybe never go back. We, we're in the office a couple of days a week. We don't have any plan to not do that, right? So our entire business now is, is in the cloud. We, we work with different practices. We've embedded technology in that process and we don't expect to see our people in the office unless we're really collaborating and getting a benefit out of it. And that's a radical change in a short space of time, right? That's a huge change. And uh, but the question is, what more can we expect? still in the throes of coronavirus. It's not going away anywhere soon. And so how, how, how do you see business adjusting for that? Yeah, um, I think that's a really interesting question, actually. So I would have said the focus on technology, even a couple of years ago, was still very much around improving processes. So what are we doing in the business now and how can we improve that process? And, and that's, you know, maybe that's cost reduction driven or reducing headcount driven. Whereas now I see the big trend is, okay, that's great. We've sort of mastered that logic, but if this is the new model in terms of business and we have to adapt and do things differently, what is it that we're not doing well? Like what could we actually really radically change in our business if we, if we implemented the right technology to transition that process completely? Let's reinvent our go-to-market or our process within the business and change that completely by adopting the right technology to, to, to think about it completely differently. Well, David, that's all fascinating stuff and it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Lovely to meet you and thanks for having me on the podcast. And now let's talk to Callum Pickering from Indeed. Well, Callum, it's been a big week of results. Uh, Wages have gone up and so has unemployment. What's your view about this? Yeah, pretty strong uh, set of figures across both wage growth and employment. Beginning with employment, up 55,000 people in the month of October, which was much higher, almost three times higher than the market expectations. So that was a, a really good result after what was some pretty softish September figures. And there wasn't much employment growth uh, the previous month. So the fact that the labor market did sort of bounce back this time and in a strong way was certainly a, a welcome development. It suggests that the economy 
and the labor market continues to be quite strong and resilient. Now, on the wage side, we saw some really interesting figures because we saw the largest quarterly increase in wages in the 26-year history of the wage price index, up 1.3% in the quarter, driven by you know a range of you know decisions from the Fair Work Commission, sort of impacted accommodation, food services, healthcare, uh, retail trade, um, which pushed through some massive increases. Uh, across those sectors. So that was certainly a welcome development from a a household um, standpoint with their wages increasing significantly. So wages would have gone up by 4%, would that be right? So yeah, annual wage growth was up around 4%, up 1.3% just in the the September quarter. We haven't seen annual wage growth of 4% since the March quarter 2009. So it's been a while. That was sort of the, you know, the, the height of the the mining boom just before the the GFC sort of hit and, and brought wage growth down. So it has been a while since we've seen uh, wage growth of this nature. And unemployment went up marginally to 3.7%. It, it did, but I, I don't think it's something we need to be particularly concerned about. And the, and the reason for that was because the figures for September were a little bit wonky. Um, we saw some big shifts in the participation rate in September, uh, declined by a surprising amount, and it sort of just reverted back in October. So I think the 3.7% rate, unemployment rate, is consistent with where we were in both July and August. Uh, it's a little bit inconsistent with where we were in September. So I think what we just saw was a little bit of volatility in, in the data that probably didn't reflect reality. And so we've just sort of got back to, to where we were uh, a little bit earlier in the year. The The reality is at this point in the economic cycle, a 3.7% unemployment rate is an incredibly you know, good result. The labor market remains very, very tight. There continues to be really strong demand for, for workers across the nation in terms of more forward-looking indicators like job vacancies or, or job ads on platforms such as Indeed. So the labor market is holding up uh, really quite well despite a, a very challenging economic environment. Do you see unemployment rising? I do expect there to be a gradual increase in the unemployment rate, which is consistent with what we're seeing from forecasts from you know the Reserve Bank and, and Federal Treasury. It is unlikely that we're, we're still going to be at 3.7% unemployment rate 12 months from now. In all likelihood, we'll probably be 4%, maybe low 4% range. The RBA thinks we'll be at about 4.2% um, by the end of the end of next year. Now, in a historical sense, that's still a really good result. Outside of this current period we've had, uh, it's been very rare to see an unemployment rate below 4%. Um, we hadn't seen it since, you know, the, the 1970s. Um, so the fact that, you know, despite all these increases in the cash rate, despite the very challenging economic environment we find ourselves in, um, that the unemployment rate could still be in that, that low 4% range, I think would be a, a pretty good outcome overall. Now, last time we spoke, you expressed concern about the number of part-time jobs that were coming through, driving the employment growth, and there was a lack of full-time jobs. Has that continued this time around? Uh, we did see a jump in full-time jobs for October, but when we look at the, the bigger picture, you know, the past six months, it's employment growth is still primarily being driven by by part-time. So over the past six months, uh, full-time job creations accounted for around one-third of overall employment gains. Now, just to put that number into perspective, uh, full-time employment accounts for around 70% of total employment across the nation. So the fact that it's only accounted for around one-third of growth over the past six months is is very, very low. Now, in an ideal situation, you want the economy to be creating high-quality jobs, high-paying jobs, and that's particularly important in the current economic circumstances we find ourselves in where you know, pay has never been more important and people are sort of struggling to make ends meet. So we would like to see a little bit stronger full-time job creation. 
uh, that would certainly give us a little bit more confidence around the labor market and the broader economy. And I, I think that measure is certainly something that the policymakers should be watching closely uh, because it's one thing to be create a lot of jobs, which is what we are doing, but you've also got to be creating high quality jobs as well. High, high quality and high, higher paying jobs. Exactly. Yeah. What about hours work? They increased by around uh, half a percent in the month of October, uh, which is a pretty solid result uh, and consistent with what we, we saw on the employment side. Overall, when we sort of take a step back and we, and we look at the big picture since the pandemic began, um, hours worked to slightly outpaced employment gains over that period. So on average, people are working slightly more hours um, than they used to. Um, and that's partly reflective of, of people working more part-time hours. You know, the average part-time casual worker is probably finding more hours today than they they used to be. Not much of a change on the full-time side of things they tend to be working a pretty consistent amount of hours but it is is good to see that people are seem to be finding the hours that they they need which is one of the the reasons why the the rate of underemployment has sort of remained quite contained um even as sort of the economy has softened a little bit but the economy is continuing to soften at the same time yeah that's that's certainly the sense it's been a very challenging 12 month period for the the economy uh, particularly from the household sector um, the, the jobs market is sort of holding everything together at the moment. But but certainly when you look at um, household spending patterns and retail trade, you, you certainly get the sense that a lot of households out there are, are struggling, um, just that those struggles aren't uh, that widespread just yet. Like I said, the key to all this is uh, employment. Uh, if you see a spike in the unemployment rate, then then suddenly the, the dynamics across the economy uh, really shift quite quickly as sort of households become very concerned and try to rein in their spending. Um, at, at the moment, they're doing a little bit of that um, just because it is difficult to, to make ends meet. Um, but but overall, that hasn't been enough to sort of cause a recession or a severe downturn. So we're, we're, we're still coping from an economic standpoint. Now, uh, how do you see, how do you regard the RBA will look at these figures for wages and the jobs figures? Well, while they were both very strong uh, figures, particularly the, the wage growth figures, they were in line with expectations. Um, this was sort of what the, the Reserve Bank was expecting. So it's not necessarily going to shift their thinking about the economy. Now, that said, uh, if you look at the RBA's history, it's very rare that they do a single rate hike. Uh, if they make a decision to, to raise rates, they're typically looking at multiple hikes. And, and so I would expect them to either raise rates when they meet in December or February as they respond to that that earlier inflation spike that um, they saw when the September uh, figures came out. So, yeah, I, I do I do think that we'll see further action from the Reserve Bank in the near term. Certainly, because by the end of the month, we're going to have the inflation figures coming out as well. On the 20th. Yeah, we'll, we'll get another um, monthly read on inflation. So that'll be a really interesting one, uh, more timely than our quarterly measure. It'll give a, a sense of whether... Uh, overall inflationary pressures continue to come down, which is what we're we're hoping to see, um, and and the pace um, that that is occurring. That's going to be important as well. So it's not just enough that inflation is coming down; uh, it's also got to be doing so at a, at a pretty solid clip um, to keep the the RBA happy. Uh, you would expect that inflation would be coming down if the economy is softening. Uh, typically, yes, um, but of course we are seeing some persistence in inflation, particularly in the service sector, um, driven by primarily domestic factors such as wage growth. And that is uh, creating some concern for the for the Reserve Bank. You know, they don't want inflation to become entrenched in expectations. And when it is being driven by domestic factors, and there is that persistence uh, to inflation, 
then there is that heightened risk um, that it does become entrenched in expectations. So they're trying to put a stop to that, which is the reason why they uh, hiked rates uh, earlier this month and why I think it's quite likely that they're going to hike rates again, either in December or February. Right. And uh, and of course, the wages figures going up around 4% would be obviously be exercising their minds as well. Yeah, it'll certainly be weighing on their thinking. Um, like I said, it's in line with expectations, but it's still a, a big number. And there is likely to be some spillover uh, from the decisions that prompted that big uh, September quarter rise in inflation, which is going to flow through to you know December quarter and, and March quarter. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Age growth as well. Um, the simple fact right now is that the wage growth we are seeing doesn't appear to be consistent with productivity growth. And so there is that risk that it is going to contribute quite uh, considerably to inflationary pressures going forward. So the RBA will be mindful of that. They'll be watching wage figures and productivity figures closely to, and they'll be hoping that those productivity figures uh, pick up so that the wage growth we are seeing doesn't contribute as much to the inflation side of things. But uh, certainly you would say that the RBA might be raising rates you know, either in December or February. I think they would be leaning that way. Um, like I said, it's very rare that they would just do a single rate hike. Usually it's a, a number of rate hikes that they, they go through um, when they make that decision to move. And as a consequence of that, I do think that we will see something in either December or February. Or both. Or potentially both. Hopefully not. I've got a mortgage and I'd prefer it if we didn't see another boo. Um, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Well, Callum, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what's happening in the news? ChatGPT maker OpenAI has reached an agreement for Sam Altman to return as CEO days after his ouster, capping frenzied discussions about the future of the startup at the centre of an artificial intelligence boom. The company also agreed to revamp the board of directors that have dismissed him. OpenAI named Britt Taylor, former co-CEO of Salesforce, as chair and also appointed Larry Summers, former US Treasury Secretary, to the board. Altman said in a post on X, I'm looking forward to returning to OpenAI. After Altman was fired on Friday, the original board had given scant explanation other than his lack of candour and its need to defend OpenAI's mission to develop AI that benefits humanity. The deal to restore Altman ushers in a potentially new era for the startup, a non-profit, which long juggled concerns among staff about AI's dangers and its potential for commercialisation. Altman's dramatic turnaround has drawn comparisons in Silicon Valley law to Steve Jobs, Apple's CEO who left the computer maker in a 1985 power struggle only to return 12 years later. Altman took back the CEO mantle after four days. 
his departure had immediately precipitated upheaval at OpenAI, with President Greg Bottman quitting in protest. Sunday, Altman was back at OpenAI's offices, expecting his switch for reappointment when the board surprised again by naming ex-Twitch boss Emmett Shear as interim CEO. In a post on X on Tuesday, Shear said he worked 72 very intense hours to bring stability and ultimately Altman back to OpenAI. This was a pathway that maximised safety alongside doing right by all stakeholders involved, he said. Altman's masterstroke was made possible in part by Microsoft. When he was out of a job, CEO Nadella said Altman could head a new research team alongside Brockman and other colleagues departing from OpenAI. By Monday, nearly all of OpenAI's over 700 strong staff had threatened to leave and join Microsoft's efforts unless the board stepped down and reinstated Altman, according to a letter reviewed by Reuters. This threat was backed by Microsoft's vast computing power, the key asset powering OpenAI's technology, along with its staff of computer scientists. And fresh RBA minutes from its Melbourne Cup Day meeting revealed that the central bank had left the door open for further rate hikes should inflation prove persistent. Mem- members agreed that whether further tightening of monetary policy is required to ensure that inflation returns to target in a reasonable time frame would depend on how the incoming data alter the economic outlook and the evolving assessment of risks, the minutes read. An iron ore billionaire Andrew Forrest family office has struck a deal to buy Australian hat maker Cooper Hats Proprietary Limited, deepening the Fortescue Metals Group founders' ownership of local apparel labels. Forrest and his wife Nicola's investment, Tatarang Proprietary Limited, will acquire the manufacturer of cowboy hats from the fifth generation of the Kia family. They didn't disclose the value of the deal. It's Tatarang's second deal for one of the country's much-loved outback brands after its 2020 acquisition of R.M. Williams, a maker of leather boots that are worn as widely by bankers as farmers. The two companies will remain distinct operations according to a spokesman for the firm. Established in Hobart in 1976, Cupra employs about 120 staff at a factory based in Kempsey on Australia's east coast. Like R.M. Williams, the Cooper brand has assumed an iconic status, shifting from function to fashion over generations. Both have roots in rural workwear, but have retained ubiquity even in a now predominantly urban Australia, thanks to the national self-image associated with the bush. Popular among politicians when on the circuit, a Cooper is also a long-time supplier of hats for the dress uniforms of this country's armed forces and past Olympic teams. According to the investment firm, since Tatarak took ownership, R.M. Williams has increased headcount by about 60% or 500 people and added two new manufacturing lines at its Adelaide workshop. And Optus Chief Executive Kelly Bayer-Rosemarin has resigned following the mass outage that hit its network on November the 8th. It was a second reputational disaster on Ms. Bayer-Rosemarin's watch after last year's cyber attack where her response, like the outage, was widely criticised. Parent company Singtel announced its departure on Monday morning, with Chief Financial Officer Michael Venter becoming interim CEO. News of Ms. Bayer Rosmarin's plans to resign this week followed her appearance at a Senate inquiry into the outage that caused chaos for customers and calls for expensive compensation. Ms. Bayer Rosmarin has held the top job at Optus since April 2020, but oversaw two major disasters. A cyber attack last year led to the personal information of 10,200 customers, including passport, driver's license and Medicare numbers, being posted online. Her handling of both crises came in for fierce criticism. On Friday, I had the opportunity to appear before the Senate to expand on the course of the network outage and how Optus recovered and responded, Ms Bayer-Rosmarin said in a statement. 
I was also able to communicate Optus's commitment to restore trust and continue to serve customers. Having now had time for some personal reflection, I've come to the decision that my resignation is in the best interest of Optus moving forward. And a global search for the next Optus chief executive has begun after Kelly Bayer Rosemarin resigned with immediate effect, with a successor unlikely to be named for at least six months. Former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian is understood to have flagged her interest in taking the top job after Telco recruited her to manage its business customers last year. But Singtel is understood to prefer a more conservative option and a proven Telco executive. A more likely scenario would be for Singtel to parachute in one of its own from Singapore, just as it did when it appointed Alan Liu to run Optus, who, during his five-year tenure, stabilised earnings before handing the reins to Bayer Rosmarin. While Berejiklian was considered a star recruit at Optus, a handicap to her ascendancy at a telco is the Independent Commission Against Corruption's findings that she engaged in serious corrupt conduct while in office, a finding which she is appealing. Berejiklian also appeared to play politics rather than display corporate leadership during the outage. Andrew Sheraton, Optus's Vice President Regulatory and Public Affairs, reports to Berejiklian, but she was absent from any public and media appearances until late the next afternoon after the outage. Singtel Chief Executive Yuen Kwan Moon said Optus's priority is about setting on a path of renewal for the benefit of the community and customers. On this score, appointing Berejiklian could be viewed as regressive. Other contenders for CEO include Chief Financial Officer Michael Venter, who has been appointed interim CEO, but is viewed as more as a benchwarmer than a permanent replacement. Another internal candidate is former Optus Business Managing Director Peter Kalariopoulos, who has been appointed to the new role of Chief Operating Officer at the Telco. Ewan described Kalariopoulos as a veteran telecommunications executive. Since leaving Optus in 2005, Kaliropoulos has been Chief Executive of Singapore's Telco Star Hub and has been consulting for the businesses in the country since July last year. If Singtel doesn't appoint from within its own ranks, there are other external candidates in Australia. At bigger rival Telstra, there is Chief Financial Officer Michael Acklin and consumer boss Brad Whitcomb. But Acklin is key to Telstra's T25 strategy and as such, Chief Executive Vicky Brady would be keen to retain him. Whitcomb, meanwhile, only started at Telstra in January after serving eight years at MBN Co. While a quick departure is not unprecedented, he is viewed as unlikely to leave Telstra so soon. Former MBN Chief Executive Bill Morrow is another prospect to helm Optus. After leaving MBN in late 2018, Morrow has served as Chief Executive of US multi-channel video programming distributor DirecTV. But whether he wants to leave sunny California for stormy Optus is a different matter. And younger Australians are cutting back on things they need as well as things they want, as rising rents and home loan repayments force them to make tougher spending decisions than older people who have more savings, new research shows. Combank spending data shows Australians on average are slowing their discretionary spending as interest rates and consumer prices rise. But the 25 to 29 age group is the only one that is also spending less on items considered essential. Analysts said the cuts to both categories was an unusual manifestation of cost of living pressures forcing younger people to change things such as what they eat and how they travel to pay the rent and their mortgages. The average Australian spent a total $2,920 a month in the third quarter of 2023, with $1,473 going towards essential goods and services and $1,447 being discussionary. That reflects a 3.5% increase in essential spending and a 0.2% uptick in discretionary spending. The figures do not include housing costs. 
But among 25 to 29 year olds, essential spending fell 3.7% to $955 and discretionary spending slumped 6.2% to $1,300. Essential spending by Australians aged 65 and older increased 55.5% to $1,518 and discretionary spending rose 7.2% to $1,176 for a total of $2,695. Combank Head of Analytics and Innovation, Wade Tubman, said the 25 to 29 year old cohort was the only group to reduce discretionary and essential spending and signal members were making dramatic decisions to create space in their budgets for higher mortgage and rent costs. Cuts to essential spending could be in the form of opting for the bus rather than driving to work, reducing extras cover on health insurance or shopping at cheaper supermarkets. When it comes to young people, they're in a spot where on average they're both more likely to be renting or a first home buyer, and both of those groups are seeing high increases in the cost of housing. A separate survey of 1,063 Australians by Comparison Group founder found 1 in 10 millennials and 9% of Generation Z Australians have taken out a credit card in the last 12 months to deal with rising costs. And the South African owners of Country Road Group, whose stores include Country Road, Witchery and Mimco, say the sober conditions in the retail sector have deteriorated to the point where its fashion chains are suffering a double-digit collapse in sales growth. Country Road Group sales have slumped to a 10.7% decline over the 20 weeks to mid-November, compared to the healthy 12.4% same-source sales growth witnessed over fiscal 2023. Woolworths Holdings, the South African owners of Country Road Group and former owners of department store David Jones, said in an update to its local market that their fashion outlets have succumbed to the deteriorating conditions across the Australian retail sector. When Woolworths sold DJs last year to private equity firm Anchorage Capital Partners for around $100 million, kept Country Road Group, which also houses Trinary and Politics. The staple of fashion stores had improved greatly over 2022 and 23, but now its sales growth has collapsed with a sharp sales decline. The Woolworths Holding Trading Update reported that for the first 20 weeks of fiscal 2024, Country Road Group sales declined by 8.1% and 10.7% in comparable stores. And Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill is pushing to boost cybersecurity among 2.5 million small businesses to combat the growing trend of criminal groups exploiting vulnerable supply chains to attack bigger prices. Small businesses will get access to voluntary cyber health checks and one-on-one assistance during cyber attacks under new funding announced by Ms O'Neill on Monday. The move is aimed at fixing insecurity among the 97% of businesses identified as small, most of which do not have the time or resources to properly plan for cyber security incidents, but will increasingly have to demonstrate a higher degree of maturity to participate in critical supply chains. The plan, which comes into effect next year, comes ahead of the imminent release of the Albanese's government long-awaited cyber security strategy, details of which have been emerging in recent weeks. Just over $7 million has been allocated to establish a voluntary cyber business health check program with a free, tailored assessment of their cyber security maturity. Further, $11 million has been allocated in a small business cyber resilience service, which will provide assistance for small businesses to navigate cyber challenges and walk them through the recovery from an attack. John McPherson, head of cyber response at global law firm Ashurst, said threat actors readily targeted small players to get to bigger fish. There are many small companies that play critical roles in the financial services, energy and healthcare sectors, and they will increasingly need to demonstrate, hopefully with government support, can be themselves cyber secure, he said. The corporate watchdog last week released a report revealing small businesses were cyber immature compared to their larger counterparts. Small businesses scored on average 1.42 out of 4 for cyber protection, 
1.34 for detection, 1.36 for response, and 1.28 for recovery, the Australian Securities Investments Commission 2023 Cyber Pulse survey found. Worryingly, it found 34% of small businesses did not follow or benchmark against cybersecurity standards. 44% did not perform assessments of third-party vendors. 33% had limited capability for multi-factor authentication. And 45% did not scan for vulnerabilities. And Jim Chalmers says Australia must consider reforming its corporate merger rules and declining competition among bigger and more dominant businesses over recent decades has left citizens paying higher prices for worse products and services. The Treasurer says right now Australia needs innovative businesses more than ever to help drive the transition to net zero, to make the most of emerging data and digital innovations, and to seize the opportunities from the growth of the care economy. The Albanese Government on August 23rd said a task force would take two years to conduct a sweeping review of competition policy settings, including the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's request for more powers to stop anti-competitive mergers. The ACCC has proposed that firms above a certain size would have to gain formal approval from the watchdog before pursuing any deals, along with a special calling power to capture smaller mergers that raise specific competition concerns. This would be a sharp break with current rules, where firms are not required to notify or get clearance from the ACCC before any takeover is finalised, and which force a regulator to make the case of the federal court to unwind deals. Other than having to prove that a merger was likely to substantially lower competition, the ACCC has recommended that the onus of proof be switched to companies to make the case that their union would not substantially lower competition. The consultation paper outlines three options to reform the merger regime, including the ACCC's, with the other two options granting varying degrees of extra powers to the regulator. The ACCC in August blot ANZ's acquisition of Suncor and more recently has raised concerns about Woolworth's $586 million deal to take a controlling stake in pet stock. The looming shake-up follows similar changes made in recent years in the US, Britain and the EU to beef up regulators' powers, particularly in the context of the rise of digital giants such as Google and Facebook, which have hoovered up smaller players to cement their dominance. Now, Australia's top housing markets will see falls next year as interest rate hikes hit households, just as the economy slows, according to forecaster SQM Research. The research houses warned a correction, albeit a small, modest one, could strike markets along the east coast, with Sydney and Melbourne particularly at risk after their recent strong runs. But the resources-backed capitals of birth and business could dodge the fallout, with expectations they will ride the tailwinds of a recovering Chinese economy as it boosts demands for commodities like iron ore, leaving buyers in those markets. Markets cashed up. The real pain is expected to come from rises in interest rates, which have been ratcheting up since 2022 and could rise further next year. SQM warned that the consecutive rises were expected to cause a rise in distressed sales next year, with this already being seen in New South Wales. Overall, Sydney is expected to see a fall in dwelling prices up to 4%. The biggest pain could hit the mortgage bill in Sydney's middle to outer ring suburbs where SQM warned that freestanding houses could suffer a larger correction. By contrast, Sydney units are expected to outperform and the inner ring is still expected to have price rises as top-end property is soaring on the back of demand from foreign investors. SQM's annual update, the Housing Boom and Bus Report, has a base case forecast that the average national dwelling prices will change in the range from a 1% drop to a 3% rise. SQM said that the correct in prices could also hit Canberra and Hobart. Adelaide and Darwin are expected to remain steady or record a minor rise or dip, but the gateway market of Sydney has already seen a significant deterioration in housing affordability. Melbourne is also forecast to have a modest correction, with prices tipped to fall by up to 3%.
The city's top end is still expected to rise and units are also expected to outperform. Canberra is forecast to record the largest falls of all cities, with declines of up to 4 and 8% as government spending slows and more housing is completed. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tom Cornell, the Head of Assessments, APAC, at Highview about how Aussies can prepare for the Great Resignation. Tom is a hiring expert with a background in psychometrics and IO psychology and he'll shed light on how the Great Resignation will affect Australian business. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about how the infrastructure spending by federal and state governments are affecting inflation. For the most successful access to learn economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.